for me, I guess the biggest, the biggest and most interesting thread to talk about will probably be to talk about democratic subjectivity, I guess, and like what that constitutes that and the opposing traditions concerning that. Because it is interesting. He brings up Lippmann and says he argued for one interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like Dewey has another, which I've never read any Dewey. So I only know of him kind of by things like this where someone's telling me about him. He was a but, founder of my alma mater, and I lived in the house that was named after him. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I did not know he founded uh, Bennington. Yeah. Yeah, I wow. lived in Dewey. I was house chair of Dewey. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but it is, it is cool that there's, like, that he's trying to talk about, like, specifically American political traditions. So I think that's important to note and think about. And he mm-hmm. gestures towards some pretty weird thinkers. Um yeah, some people that have been largely forgotten. I mean, it's very clear that he's also making the historian's uh, quote-unquote mistake of being like, my field of expertise is the lens through which we understand what is happening now. Um, and I don't think that that's totally bad because I think there, there's a lot of good that falls out of that. Um, but you can also feel its limits uh, as you move through the argument here. So... Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, I was thinking about in terms of this. Like, it seems clear in the two chapters we read last time and the three here that he's identifying something that I now, after having read it, believe is the platonic turn in American society. By which I mean, if we look at Lippmann and then we look at Robert Reich's symbolic analysts, Both of these guys are basically arguing that the best and the brightest are going to be the ones who govern, whether that be in the realm of public opinion, technocratic management, you know, all of these things. And then there's call it like degenerate or subplatonic. Right. And I mean it in this way. I mean it this way. Is that there is a separation between rulers and producers Mm -hmm. that is essential for the framework of the republic. Now and it's epistemically justified. Yes, it's an epistocracy. Because to Plato. Yeah, because if the good is a category of knowledge, and then the people who are going to be best and know what the good is are going to be the people that basically have the leisure time and the education to delve into that. I mean, I think that's what's so important about the focus is on social engineering and education that happen here. Right. And so I think that that sort of blurs the line. And I hope we can get the guy who wrote Eclipse of the Demos, um, Anti-Democracy Before Neoliberalism, in because he's talking so much about this and does a fairly significant deep dive into Dewey. Yeah, I'll be interested in whatever you have to bring up about that. That'll be cool. Yeah, but I think what Lash is identifying is democracy as practice, democracy as subjectivity versus democracy as institution and uh market preference let's say yeah yeah i think bestner was saying basically the same thing when he said that they all largely came to view it as a procedural equality Mm -hmm. like that's what constitutes democracy which was interesting just to see them abandon like the exact opposite views of democracy like we're talking about there's definitely like Mm -hmm. many like long-term trajectories where the understanding that Lash wants to revive like existed and then just died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just get totally flattened by the Cold War mm-hmm. uh, is basically what happens. I mean, instrumental democracy. In other words, democracy is a place where 
subjects come to realize their private interests in the public sphere mm, becomes yeah. the hegemonic framework for understanding it. Democracy it's, as an agonistic contesting over what the public good is, is, I mean, that's so far from what we experience today. Bernie Sanders is really the death rattle of that. Yeah. It really was. I mean, it's tragic what happens in this election cycle with him. I disagree with him on like some fundamentals of his campaign, but I made phone calls for that guy and, and did some other stuff too. And it's, um, we've really just seen the end of uh, what I would call like public good. Yeah. It was interesting because he, I think we come to see that like, Oh, he's establishment in the sense that to be in there, you kind of have to be pretty liberalized in some ways just to exist and like function. And he certainly was, but at the same time, he was at least attempting to like mix in, you know, and stand for a debate about like sort of what's going on with the people in the country. I don't know to put it like simply like what's going on with the people and like what should be done and how Mm -hmm. can like this interact with like Washington which has kind of always been sort of what he's tried to do, which you would think that should be like a truism about being in politics, but it's, you know, really the opposite. Right. Given that you're a representative of a certain constituency. So I have a friend that worked in a teen homeless shelter or something like that, um, or like halfway house or something in Burlington, not far from city hall. And when Bernie Sanders was mayor, he would come have lunch there and bring his like sack lunch and talk to the kids. And the kids would be like, I feel like they just like break down crying. Like no one listens, like no one knows how hard it is or like whatever. And apparently he'd do that even when he was like Senator and he would be like, okay, well I'll go to Washington for you and I will advocate. And then of course he would actually, you could see him on C-SPAN being like, this is the issue that the nation's working class feel. I can't think of anyone else who has the, democratic what i would say a traditionalist yeah democratic idea like that that's in power anymore like who aoc like she's basically like a lobbyist for the woke end of silicon valley and gentrifiers in nyc like yeah he's just a sheepdog yeah and it's it does feel like this sort of signals like i don't know you don't feel like he's going to run again obviously and you don't feel like anyone is there who can like in any way take up what he represented either at least if there is somebody then like i've never heard of them you know what i mean like i don't know who they would be and i don't even know what the success of this project would be seeing you know what's happened the last couple go arounds Mm -hmm. yeah or even if it's possible i mean obviously part of the reason that we're here uh is that nothing feels possible so yeah you know (laughs) i think like it's hard to talk honestly this was a really painful three chapters in a certain way because, I mean, one, Lash isn't at his best, and he wrote this as he was dying. And that's clear. And that's sad at some level, that you can see it in the text, especially in the last chapter that we read, which has some lazy arguments and juxtapositions. But it was also sad because so much of what he says comes true, that double standards, whether they're for the lower class or for the upper class, create and solidify class hierarchies no matter what. And we can see this in the way that sort of the Democratic Party treats the social unrest that we've seen this year, right? Well, riots are just the language of the unheard. And so you see, it's not really their fault that this is happening. 
And that's why we need to be the ones who stay in power because we'll decide how best to handle these things because they're just too traumatized by their own poverty or whatever to self-govern or, you know, there's all sorts of cynicism that plays out here. And I don't want to say that like none of what happens in the civil unrest we've seen is legitimate or authentic or whatever. Um, But I think it would be deeply naive to say that uh, it was an uprising of any stripe rather than just the fruits of social degradation all around the same token right uh it's very clear that they're the elites get to do whatever the fuck they want you know i was thinking about america after 2008 and how all of these guys basic almost ended the world economy within 24 hours and no one guy went to prison and he was a minor player that's a two-tiered society. That is the society of double standards right there. And if you're asking yourself, well, how could these things possibly be related? I think the thing to point to is the Citizens United decision, wherein Justice Kennedy argues for, in case people don't know, that's the decision that allows for super PACs to happen, which is when we say we want money out of elections, we're talking about repealing Citizens United or overturning that decision. And he makes the minority rights case for corporations. And he says, corporations are a minority. And to not have them be able to do this, to have a say in our elections, is to disenfranchise them of their constitutional rights. And this is how one hand washes the other. It creates a feedback loop of pity that is legally and formally realized to the most cynical ends anyone can imagine without, I would say, actually materially benefiting the vast majority of Americans, whatever your like creed or color or whatever is, is that it's not about you. In fact, you know, think about it this way. If you're in a union, one of the things you want to do is you want to set up specific criteria for being fired because then you have a standard you can hold management to. They can't just fire willy-nilly. That's important. You need a common standard that holds things together. That has to be true for everybody. You know, If you get rid of that standard, then the default is where the concentration of power lies. And that's going to lie in the hands of management. And yeah. I, think, I think this is what we're living through now. This is why you and I were talking last night about how I think we're in the fourth American Republic that was created between 9-11 and 2008, which centers around the Patriot Act, Citizens United. Actually, I'll have to see when Citizens United is passed. But um, I would say at least in these three decisions, whether or not the actual like eight-year window is correct, like 9-11, Citizens United, and um, the 2008 financial meltdown, where it was like, we know we've created a formal end run around the Constitution. We have, and we have solidified class stratifications that are backed by the Supreme Court and the Federal Reserve Bank. It brings me back to the earlier chapters when we were talking a lot about Ortega and the revolt of the masses. Um, mm. I just kept thinking about, we, it, we now have all of the vices of the aristocracy with none of the virtues. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about um, like, when is a hierarchical society at its best and like looking the most attractive and it feels like it's when you see a bunch of people slotted into their position, but their position, one, makes use of their talents, and two, provides them with dignity and a place in society that they can enact what they can do 
and be like respected for it. And like, there's a sort of humanity in that. And I think that proponents of a democratic society would argue that there's a humanity and a sort of broad equality, like Lash is trying to talk about with, um, like the lack of double standards is also trying to achieve something similar. And we're now living in a time where there is a hierarchy, but there's no dignity. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like like nothing that was good about the old way is here and nothing that was supposed to be good about the new way is here. And it's sort mm-hmm. of profoundly depressing. Like if you look at any piece of media about the early 20th century British aristocracy, they're like in the midst of falling apart financially as a class that can sustain itself. Um, but there's always, I feel like just in a lot of things I've read or seen, there's a sort of like, well, we have a duty to these people. We must provide them with jobs. Like we can't just fire them because we have no money anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of like, you know, there's a paternal like these, obligation. Yeah. It's, it is sort of paternal. And there's kind of like, well, at least then that like someone cares about the material needs of the people under them. And mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of what Ortega was getting at in a lot of ways. And it's kind of what Lash is gesturing towards when he says, like, you know, isn't this pretty similar to what's going on now, except without the concern? It's just mm-hmm. sort of like, I'm above you, but like, I don't care what happens to you. And there's more of you to fill the place that you'll leave. Right. You know what I mean? So it's right. You get sort of like a, a performative pity. Yeah, I was, and no, that's where I was and no material rewards, right? Or, yeah, because oh, before there was a material component where you had to justify your position in society by actually having some level of concern that had a material basis and that made the society like hold together and function, even you know, like whatever you want to say about it, like notwithstanding that at least had to take place in a lot of former modes of living, but they've now like aestheticize that function or something. And now Mm -hmm. it's totally affective and it's just like, well, I'm in power, like one, because I'm smart, but two, because I'm moral and you know, I'm moral because three, I feel bad about the bad stuff. And and also I'm smart. Yeah, I'm smart. And I'll tell you on TV that I feel bad. And like, so that's now like why I'm above you. Mm -hmm. But I think like we're pointing out at the end of the day, it's utterly cynical. And I think even Lash sort of, is so charitable that he doesn't even fully conceive of how utterly cynical it will become like in some ways, because there's a part of the book where he talks about how he tries to set up a binary where you'll have either standards or compassion. Mm -hmm. And neither of us like that, but just to take his point for a minute, he really does think that like, okay, in lieu of exacting standards that are the same for everybody that you all have to rise to meet in order to have respect or you know if you fall below them you will lose the respect of your fellow man and that's one of the important facets of a truly democratic society on the other hand you have compassion which he'll say comes from people in positions of power towards people in positions of misery and sort of functions like pity and in so doing the pity will kind of it makes the miserable person even more ignoble and even less likely to be anything more than what they are because it reduces them further and creates a kind of like victim identity for them. And it makes the person pitying them less likely to actually do anything more than pity them. It sort of reifies these power structures that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, martyrs don't run the church. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I do feel like that's an interesting look, but it almost feels like 
to call that compassion the way that we're seeing it today is is not quite accurate because in truth it's it's so deeply instrumentalized and cynical that you know really it's propaganda like i don't think that anyone i don't think that it nourishes anybody's soul up there to do this no i mean it's there are moments where you really just want lash to do nietzsche <laughs> You know, but he wants to advocate for a certain version of American Protestantism, um, which obviously precludes getting to bust out (laughs) genealogy of morals, uh, which I think more successfully articulates some of his problems with the condescension of uh, pity and the cynicism therein. Nietzsche always was for, he was a great critic of prevailing bourgeois morality i'll say i feel Mm -hmm. like i really like mcintyre's look at nietzsche and freud in that while they tend to get universalized initially as like having the critique of all existing everything up Mm -hmm. until them i think freud and nietzsche both present a pretty interesting look at what was going on exactly at their time Mm -hmm. um I don't know how much of a window they ever had into anything else. And I'll probably never like read Freud's book about Moses because I just don't ever want to do that. But (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that's fair. At the same time, like there is a certain, um, there is a certain insight that they're providing. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think that's why Nietzsche feels so right here is because something about the formation of bourgeois society took hitherto existing like traditional virtues And it did sort of form like a strange instrumentalization that allowed people to be both good and malicious at the same time with like Mm -hmm. one hidden and one as the face. And I think Nietzsche gives you a pretty good look at that. But bringing up Lash's Protestantism, it was an interesting thing he gets into. So he wants to talk about how for him, liberalism um, is built on a pre-existing order of society, like a pre-existing cultural foundation which he'll identify as sort of like vaguely American Protestantism. It involves things like responsibility, self prudence, thrift. Yeah. Like you take care of yourself, you handle your own business, you're a respectable person, you're honest, people rely on you. You're able to have relationships with people because you're like your own self-sustaining adult that they can rely on and vice versa. And this is the way in which you form a community. You take care of your family. You look out for the people around you. Yeah, the little platoons of society. And this is how he thinks liberalism was essentially able to function for like the first large part of its life cycle because it did not just land on nothing, but it landed on a bedrock that was able to provide it a foundation for success because as we'll get into it seems as though democracy requires a certain context. It will be his argument and it requires a democratic subject. And one of the functions of like liberal capitalism is that it will slowly like acid just disintegrate any context that it exists in seemingly and anything that's not like somehow subordinated to like market logic will slowly become that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that is more or less the thrust of his criticism and why he tends to look back on kind of an American Protestant ethic as something possibly salutary for us today. Not that we here agree with him necessarily, but it's an interesting, I think it's far more interesting as a descriptive look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of, it has a little, it has a return to tradition vibe Yeah, <laughs> uh, to it, which is interesting <laughs> because America has always had a fitful relationship with ideas of tradition. I mean, Tocqueville talks about this. Um, 
in democracy in America when he's just like, yeah, they don't really give a shit about tradition or any of that, or they have feel no need to read Descartes because without knowing it, they just do Descartes all day long. And they're like, well, this <laughs> seems like the most probable and reasonable. Let's like do that, I guess. Um, and so it's interesting how the like antinomies of the pragmatist tradition he seems to be interested in, because I mean, he doesn't say that, but if you're going to invoke this type of American Protestantism, which seems to be apart from the Calvinist substrate that exists in America in certain ways, um, it has a pragmatic bent because it is democracy as practice. Mm-hmm. And there is an idea that it can be dispersed among the people in a way that you live through every day. And I think it's just hard, man, because what he seems to be butting up against is a very difficult thing, which is A, theorizing democracy, but B, the difficulty with the cultural description that he has embarked upon is that if you take it as truth that the market has this power over culture and tradition, then it's not persuasive to say that we need to return to culture because it does not present itself as a durable alternative to the overriding imperatives. And what is the overriding market imperatives that govern our society. And what's interesting is that there's not really, he invokes class at the end. He says, basically we need to do some sort of class struggle. He has a cultural understanding of class and like the common people. But I felt that there was something politically shallow or that politics was absent from this conversation in a certain way. Like what, which is ironic. Yeah, which is deeply ironic. You know, I think he falls prey to some of the same problems he's critiquing. I mean, look, I believe in like traditional democratic subjectivity and things like this. I think that those are persuasive. I am probably more of a Deweyite than I even know. But for so long, I have seen progressives or the left, whatever we come to call it in America, become very interested in the idea of democratic subjectivity without an interest in political structures itself. And so often it feels like something for people to get their verso book deal with. Well, what we need are radical new solidarities where we understand this. And I think that at some level that doesn't fully appreciate the power of institutions. And I think Dewey had a good sense for the power of institutions and how they shape life. That's what's deeply ironic about Lash invoking him and then being like, well, you can't blame people's misbehavior on society's ills. And I'm like, well, I think Dewey thought you kind of could um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, but that, that it didn't stay that way, that there could be a political movement that had an educational component that had, let's say, a cultural component, but that also was interested in flexing its political muscles and that those things would work in tandem with each other to remake society in the image of the uh, sovereign masses, right? The public, the sovereign public. Yeah, he lays out, just for context here, so what he wants us to think about is that, and this is something pretty new to me, um, there were a lot of 19th century debates in America about the rise of factory work, centralization, and wage labor, and what that was going to do to American democracy, because there is enough of a shared sense of the fact that Americans, by and large, being small landowners who had a level of like self-efficacy and self-education was more or less one of the foundational aspects of American democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people were not entirely sure what the result would be of 
everyone becoming wages. Like it just, you know what I mean? Like there's a certain, mm-hmm. like, well, are they going to possess what Lash is concerned with civic virtue, which is what constitutes the democratic subject, like civic virtue being a civic education, mm-hmm. being a set of skills that you can use to interact with your fellow citizens as part of creating what is now fraught with peril discourse. Um, like all of these things needed to exist and the material basis for that in Lash's eyes in uh, Victorian America before would have been like a lot of Americans while they were laborers at some time or another would eventually become small landholders and you know, whether or not they worked their farm or hired people to do it or whatever, there was a certain level of, um, what would you? Well, I mean, that's where the self-reliance comes from, right? Like you have to run the farm, you have to be thrifty, you have to basically mind the shop and that that helps materially create the subjectivity that is capable of then imbuing these little platoons of society with a type of fellow feeling in virtue that you would hope would rise up into the federated structures that then decide the frameworks of society over time. Yeah. You're not an employee. Yes. Um, You make the decisions. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure everyone survives this year to the next. Um, You butt up often enough against nature or different Mm -hmm. forces that one has to, you know, if you want to like roll into something kind of Heideggerian for a second, like, you're going to learn wisdom through having to deal with stuff that resists you constantly. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this idea that the more people are forced into like living, I won't say forced, you could argue that, but the more that people live like regimented factory clocked lives, it's not that they're not meeting negativity in that life or some forms of resistance, but it's that the forms of resistance don't engage their agency. Like, it would if they were the ones who had to decide and make decisions and build something that they owned mm-hmm. that they were responsible for. Now it's just like, I just have to do what I'm told or bad things are going to happen to me and I won't have any money and I'll start like, it's a servile position. It is. Yeah. And what it's contrasted with is certainly like worrisome in terms of like, if that was the kind of people that we were envisioning, we're going to be the engine for the political operation of this society like the transformation of those people into servile workers would be extremely anxiety producing. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a couple of strains and like Emmett's talking about Dewey is one. Um, I don't know a lot about Dewey, but I'm sure we're going to learn a lot more about Dewey in the coming mm-hmm. months. But we'll just say for now that as Lash represents him to us, he represents the idea that some form of self-reliance and um, you know, like this, specific kind of democratic subjectivity is going to be necessary and we're going to have to find some way to preserve it in this new world. Mm -hmm. And there is an opposing viewpoint, which he characterizes using Walter Lippmann, which is that regular people can't and shouldn't take part in most decision-making. It's just not for them. They don't have the expertise necessary. And in the immediate post four years and the growing, uh, the growing Cold War atmosphere. Whitman, Whitman was, wins. <laughs> yeah, that was an extremely palpable idea that like the American public couldn't possibly take part in the decision-making necessary to keep us safe from global nuclear war. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things had to be taken away and put into this black box of specialists and technocrats where they can essentially handle it for us 
and we'll take part in what more and more turns into a, a simulacrum or something of like what used to go on is the idea. And I think Lash is in some ways saying that that's not really going to be like a democratic or be like good for us as a society, given what we see going on right now and what he expects will be going on mm-hmm. in the near future, which totally bears out, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what we see is a, I like how you categorize the shift. Like if this is who you were expecting rightfully or wrongly to inherit the political mechanisms of American society, industrialization made sure that that's not who you got. So what are you going to do? Now, there are ideas of political technology, let's say, uh, that might be helpful for that. A union might be one because it rebalances the power between management and labor and also creates um, basically ways of relating to one another within a structure that actually holds power and determines one's life. You know, I've heard my mom talk about that. Her dad worked his way up in GM. He was a strong union man in Detroit. And there was the idea that it created, not just the idea, there was the experience that this created communities. Everybody's fathers knew each other from the union. And then you go do little, you know, it held society together in an important way, right? When these guys from American Compass or American Affairs say that there's a conservative case for unions, that's what they're envisioning, right? Um, Now, Maybe a helpful way to think about it is like this. If we go back to ancient Athens, we have two different ideas of freedom. And one is parousia, which is something like what in the liberal tradition we end up calling license. In other words, I get to say whatever I want and the state isn't going to throw me in prison, right? The other one is isagoria. And isagoria is the idea that anyone, no matter what social stratum, except for slaves in Athens, right? Uh, But the lower classes provided their citizens um, are able to persuade the governing body and the agora to make decisions in their own interests, provided that they can win a majority. In other words, it's a speech type that gives one entry into actual power. This is a political technology, the way that this is set up. And I would argue that the fears in the progressive era are fears of isagoria. In other words, what type of subject is going to be capable of handling this society in a democratic way? How is it created? And how would you institutionalize that? I would say that once democracy becomes instrumentalized in the Cold War era, and then especially in a new and interesting way after the dawn of neoliberalism, let's say in the 70s, we default to thinking that democracy is strictly licensed or parousia. It's a claims-making activity, the speech act uberalis, and not necessarily what your political technology of power is going in terms of a formation of power in society, right? And that is how civil society becomes incredibly politicized, right? If anybody saw the Yelp thing where now that they will mark if a restaurant's racist, this is the political technology of trying to figure out how to balance out power or whatever in society. And obviously it's very strange and has a permanent snitch quality to it and doesn't actually seem to build power from the ground up for anybody. Rather, it is a way of policing people's speech license because that's what power has been reduced to in conception and practice in American democracy, which I would say American liberal democracy ends in the fourth republic, which we're now living. Yeah, it's really interesting to use that as a lens to just think about a lot of what people do these days, because I think that there is a lot of 
We'll say even among like near reactionary people who are all about like re-theorizing power and sovereignty and like understanding the, you know, American government and all that stuff. It does feel like even someone like that who is really interested in like nothing but political theory, we'll say, as a group of people, um, still seemingly completely circumscribed by the fact that all they can really do is like engage in speech acts about stuff with each other and to others and remain sort of more or less a niche group. There's, there's no clear pathway from like we're interested in this stuff and we're talking about it to like anything else. And it's something, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, you'll hear it a lot just in terms of like socialism and usually in a lot of places involves like socialist institutions and not necessarily like government institutions, but like institutions in the terms of like socialists gathering together and forming like liberal communities with one another over the course of generations Mm -hmm. at times that provides a base for we'll say organized action or planning or whatever, like the base already exists because they're already doing and being socialism together. Um, And they have a common cause as workers and they're recognized with each other. I mean, they have class consciousness as, you know, Marx would say, and that creates both um, let's say an aesthetic and communal culture. And it also creates um, a political battery of power. Oh yeah. And there's discharged. And it's not just socialism or whatever, like weirdo, like sort of esoteric right-wing groups have had this kind of thing going on Mm -hmm. throughout the 20th century in different places um, and, you know, may have achieved like influence wherever uh, that may have happened. But just suffice it to say that there were like structures or things that existed that brought people together in a way that's not currently happening. And it's definitely not true of anything going on in America. Like people have been saying it a lot lately and it's true. There's not like a socialist tradition in America. Um, No, there might've been, but it's sort of been wiped from the record. Yeah. Like in terms of tradition constituting the passage from one generation to another of something that's like held as a trust or a mantle, like that was at some point, like the chain was broken. After enough red scares and the cold war that was over. You know, that just didn't, and honestly, yeah, there's a whole, I'm not going to get into the whole fucking thing about it, but yeah. there's a lot. It be interesting there. to do later. Yeah. So definitely. Um, so we like reinvent it, mm-hmm. but in this new way, because now we're like atomized speech people, if you <laughs> call it that. Yeah. So like what happens is, you know, you just grow up on the internet and you read Marxist.org and you're like, oh, okay, like communism and then you decide that you're a communist and then you talk to other communists on the internet and maybe like get together at a few protests of the Iraq war or whatever. And like that to you is like communism, like building a movement or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in a way that's probably a little under theorized, you are kind of just engaging in something not unlike, you know, Don Quixote, like reading. Yeah like romance novels and then going off to like fight windmills, which is essentially a LARP in some ways. And it's (laughs) yeah, like we're all in a way reduced to LARPing because we can't actually enact the substance of anything that happened before us that we're inspired by. We can just sort of like do the pretendo version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As friend of the pod, uh, who we hope to have on soon, Jeff Schollenberger will say there's nothing outside of the LARP. Yeah. You know, (laughs) that's, uh, that's, that's true. We're just live action role playing our way through all of this. 
And I think what's important, so there's a piece that came out in Current Affairs. I didn't even bother fucking reading it because it's more editorial bankruptcy from that publication. Uh, But it's like the case for mutual aid. And I I just want to talk through this like as an example of the problem of theorizing what we're going to do, right? Whoever this we is. At some point when I'm getting to know John 10 years ago, I am living below the poverty line in Tallahassee, Florida. And then at some point I'm living just above it. And to live just above it, I'm working three jobs, all of which are 1099 contractor positions. I can get away with that because Florida doesn't really do state tax. So (laughs) Uncle Sam doesn't come for too much out of my hide and I make so little money that I can kind of scrape by paycheck to paycheck. I want you guys to think about how much time per week that is. Uh, Some of you don't have to because that's the life that you're living right now. And then some leftist shows up and says, you know what you need to do on your weekends? Mutual aid. In other words, you need to get all your fucking poor friends together who barely sleep and work three jobs. And then you need to do volunteer shit to make sure all of each other uh, has enough to eat. And my response to that back then would have been like, mutual aid, motherfucker, I'm trying to get paid. I don't want to do that. That's an insane waste of time. That doesn't build any of my power. That doesn't do any. That, that does nothing to change my life conditions, except that now I know where to point somebody to the food bank or some shit. And I'm not saying food ba- banks are unimportant or whatever, but I think we can tell that this is a very atomized, impoverished, and disconnected understanding of what a solidarity or politics is going to look like as a way to build power, the democratic subjectivity that you're interested in. Um, and the materials to impose one's will on society. It's frankly bourgeois posturing, posturing at best. It's the LARP. That's the LARP. And it's, I totally agree with Compot here. Like, don't join anything ever again. Like, just if anyone has a group, like, don't fucking join it. Like, yeah, unless it's don't a get involved. Yeah, yeah. Unless, it, unless it's something that could actually like potentially increase your wages or something like that. But don't do like extracurricular groups. Come on now. Yeah, like if it's just a bunch of people who are coming, and I never like really had this problem because I feel like I developed too many weird sensibilities too early on. So like, no group that came about ever like felt comfortable to me because I'd be like, okay, like what am I going to do? Hang out with a bunch of communists who have never like thought about metaphysics and like, they'll eventually get me to betray my values. Like, no, I can't do that. So, (laughs) (laughs) so like being weird and spurgy helped me to not get involved in anything. But I think in a lot of ways, like it directly appeals to the sense that people have of loneliness and it's sort of like, Oh, we'll get together mainly virtually with a bunch of other people who are probably not that trustworthy because they're like weirdos on the internet trying to form groups and just like do stuff with them. And then predictably in three months, it completely frays apart. And, you know, hopefully like no one is in any way harmed by the activity. Sometimes they are, uh, you know, and nothing happens. And it's just, I think like Emmett's saying, it's, it's fundamentally different from a union. It's fundamentally different from any, because that is like real life, I guess is a simple way to put it. Like a union is real life. The stakes are clear. They're obvious and they're real. Yeah. Like your job is real life. Like your family is real life. Um, Christopher Lash will probably have a lot of overlap with that in the whole Haven and a heartless world thing. But like your friends that you like actually know who are your actual friends are real life. Um, 
there's a lot of things that you actually attend to that matter and that have something to do with the way that you and the people directly around you live where you can put your energy and have some effect. And a lot of people get captured in the LARP and like, I don't know, it is sort of incredibly frustrating because it's honestly rather, it's like depressing to see people really caught up in a bunch of like completely simulated nonsense that probably eats away at a hundred percent of their energy and time and lets the things that are actually going on around them, like slowly wither. um, has a sort of deep negative yeah. psychological impact on them. I mean, this is where you and I are really like betraying our sort of conservative colors in some way. Where <laughs> it's like it's like keep your own counsel, like loyalty to your family and friends. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I'll never escape that way of living. Tried. I've made my own joining quote unquote thing, um, and have found them uh, because the stakes aren't real. Um, it's sort of like academia, where it's like a lot of the stakes are really small and so that incredible opportunity to be very petty and shitty with each other or also just lazy and feckless you know like um and like look if we're thinking about how lash is thinking about this like we talked earlier about how he juxtaposes respect and compassion and he says at the opening of that chapter these aren't mutually exclusive and then proceeds to talk about them as if they are (laughs) uh which was disappointing yeah, But I can appreciate what he's saying in that um, compassion unalloyed with a type of mutual regard for each other and an ethical political stakes in both what happens materially and how individuals behave. Compassion becomes what Alasdair McIntyre calls emotivism, where what matters is how sincere you appear to others. In other words, virtue signaling. And uh, I think the only good book H.G. Frankfurt wrote was on bullshit. And he says, uh, sincerity is bullshit. You know, it's not quite lying, but it is at least a type of misrepresentation that manipulates you and asks you to, at the very least, emotionally fork something over um, so that one might not be, I don't know, canceled or some other bullshit you know, whatever invented social stakes, you know, happened there. I think the only possible way to actually conceptualize sincerity and live with it is if you understand that it could only possibly exist between you and God. Like, I don't think sincerity is like a social virtue. It's like you're saying, like, it gets instrumentalized to be this, like, completely, like, you know, like Adam Smith type, like, I'm virtuous in an enlightened self-interested way where other Moral people seem, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm ver- like, people see how, how sincere, you know, like it's a type of thing that's made for public consumption, which immediately makes it like not that meaningful because if you actually want to theorize a sincerity that's sincere, then it's only visible by its absence in a way. It's like being in Heidegger, like you can't see it because the only way for it to exist is for it to be largely invisible to other people because that's the only way that it could ever really be real. It's sort of like, I mean, if you have read the Bible or something, I mean, I'm not a Christian, but like, just look at how Jesus talks about prayer, like in the whole thing about go home and like pray in the dark closet, because then you're not going to be motivated, motivated by like the yeah, public perception. sentiments. Yeah. There's a whole really long standing like spiritual tradition throughout many different like want versions like 
you can find it in China, you can find it in Islam, you can find it in Western Christianity, and perhaps before that, like, there is an interesting interplay between this idea of sincerity, this idea of, like, worship and a relating to God and public perceptions. And I don't know, one of the many, one of the many times where, like, a really nuanced, subtle, long-standing understanding of something is just utterly erased and then, like, replaced with a bunch of facile, like, nonsense, um, which then goes on to form, like, the basis of our interactions with each other. Yeah, I mean, I think... Not super related, but, like... No, I think this is adjacent to what we're talking about. So, like, look, if we're going to play in Lash's world, then we're going to have sort of metaphysical, ethical, cultural conversations about this. Now, I think we've put a lot of work in the podcast into material analyses of what happens too, and we're going to continue to do that. But I think it's worth hanging out in this aspect of it because we haven't done quite as much of that. Um, And look, if I want to do any sort of like invectives or soapboxing around this, let me put it this way. If we take a look at our social life right now, and what John is talking about in terms of keeping your a level of uh, privacy within one's soul um, and that the true commitment, the true ethics stem from that in one's relationship to God, um, then you're, it's not going to be this like social media self-marketing thing. Think how much, as we've talked about the Parisia Isagoria distinction, how much of the speech act, how much of um, personal life has become public and marketized just by being on these platforms, then you have to ask yourself the question, is this a viable technology or medium for enacting a type of ethics or political will? And you, then you have to look at what's already built into it. And the material and cultural conditions there cater to, I would say, a very degraded and degrading sense of self, personal ethics. And as we've talked about, um, a sort of atomized, LARPing communal aspect. And in a way, Lash was more right than he knew. I mean, there are just certain things that haven't happened yet. And he writes this book in the mid-90s, I think, um, between 93 and 96, I want to say. And um, we are on the back end of that now. I am always at a deadlock when I come here because I'm... As readers can tell, um, I am probably more, um, not in terms of the magazine, but in terms of the French Revolution, a little bit more Jacobin than John is in terms of my secular commitments. Um, But I do have, I would say, classical civic aspirations that involve civic virtue, um, that involve perhaps transcendental categories of truth and ethics. And everywhere I look around me, I see a great poverty of the soul and of political engagement because we're bereft now of the social technology, the political technology to realize a will in which we all feel a stake. There's a kind of race to the bottom thing happening right now through the various double standards that have been put in place that disaggregate people's sense of stakes in the same thing. If we remember to the last episode, Lash talks about what happens to the elite and they get offshored in their commitments, just like all of the jobs they got rid of to fuck over labor. And it becomes hard to, quote unquote, live in a society 
when it feels like no one has any buy-in, not even the prime movers of that society. Like so much is the low fidelity war of all against all that the market was hoping would ventilate high fidelity violence between nation states and groups. And I think where we've arrived is a place of absolute bankruptcy. And I don't know what to do about that, but it makes me profoundly sad. Whether I want it to be this way or not, my stake is tied up in America. There are plenty of things I love about this country and plenty of things I find disappointing or horrifying, but I don't think I'm ever going to know what to do as a citizen if I don't accept at some level that I rise and fall with the tide of the American people. And maybe that's a decent enough political starting point. Then again, starting point. Yeah, I, bringing up Hobbes is pretty interesting because for a while now, I've thought that the war of all against all never actually existed until, like it was impossible until you had liberalism to dissolve the ties so brutally that you could have a war against of all against all. Um, you know, Leibniz, I think, makes the argument against that, that you couldn't actually exist in that kind of a state of nature because if like binding agreements with other people weren't possible before the Hobbesian state, then the Hobbesian state's not possible because the underlying framework just isn't there. So you have to already have the ability for people to come together and say like, let's stick together, man. And then like go forward from that. And, you know, it's the underlying assumption of Aristotle when talking about groups of people is that, human beings are born to live in communities. Yeah, that's what he means by political animal. Yeah, like we have always been communal. We always will be communal. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of being a human being. And I think that was more or less like a fundamental assumption for a long time is Mm -hmm. that that's who we are and how we are. And you have the sudden emergence of the idea that no, we're actually always existing in a like uneasy state of truce that's always threatening to break down into mass violence, Mm -hmm. which interesting description of like the conditions of England at that time, I guess, (laughs) you know, and I, I just, yeah, it's a good point that you're making that like, there's something really fundamental to things like the oath and things that bind us together, which have been manifold throughout the world. It's history, you know, even on to what we don't know. Um, you know, anywhere you go, like, that's what you'll find. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we're, as we're wrapping this up, um, I'm very interested to see where our lash goes with education and all of this, you know, um, because I think that's sort of like, now he's going to look directly at some of the engines of civil society and things like that in the book. And I think that will, I think his argument really lives and dies by the next part. So it'll be interesting to see how he pulls that off. And we certainly hope that this has been helpful and not all too depressing of a meditation, but it's worth considering who you're actually tied to versus who it just appears you are. You know, this is, this is, I think, the question of the day. I think Bernie got it wrong when he said, are you willing to fight for somebody you don't know? You know, look to your left, look to your right. Are you willing to fight for this stranger? I don't think that's the question. You know, I think the question is, um, who do you need to win with? And some of those answers might be uncomfortable (laughs) Um, because I can guarantee you it's not going to be people within just your own race or some shit. 
that's not going to be how that goes, you know? Um, and I think that that's what's so sad about the assumption of hate being at the heart of everyday Americans and that there can be no superseding that through mutual interest. And instead you need to, as Ibram Kendi suggests, create a constitutionally permanent anti-racism department that then adjudicates all of these things. I think I'd like to leave it with that. I think we should leave with how absolutely psychotic and depressing that is as an idea and how it assumes that solidarity isn't possible in a broad way in society. That is the most top-down technocratic way I can think of to absolutely finish crushing the power of the American people. I feel like we have deeply aesthetic understandings of things. And so when it wears different clothing, we don't fully recognize what it is. But I was imagining this when you sent that to me. If the anti-racism department was like all hyper-Catholic priest-looking guys, like surrounded by incense and candles all the time, you'd yeah. be like, oh. like <laughs> Yeah, I know what this is. I know what this is. Yeah, yeah. Um, or if it looks like... Um, you know, the fucking FBI. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I know what this is. I know what this is, right? That's the buy-in there. That's who's really going to run it. That's what it's actually going to be like. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I believe next week we'll have a guest in the second iteration of our Pacific Rim series, um, which I think will be really exciting in terms of understanding where we are now and how America as the major outpost of the West in the 20th century came to understand itself in relationship to China and Japan. Um, And with that being said, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, rate, uh, and review if you can. We really appreciate it. It'll um, create and, real ties. Yeah, it'll create us. real ties, guys. Yes, real ties. <laughs> yeah, real ties between us. Um, and uh, again, you can email us at ex.haustpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, any comments, uh, inquiries, or critiques are welcome. So stay safe out there. Thanks for listening.